team. All right, everyone get a copy of our notes tonight. We should be, there were a couple stacks out there. There was a copy of last week's notes. So the ones that you have should say week five. All right, so maybe double check that. Week five, if you have a week four one, you might want to update um, or you're going to have a hard time following along. All right. Week five of our series, The Bible is for Everyone. I've been very excited to go through this uh, with you. And it's helped me um, just preparing for these things and going over. And sometimes it's important um, for even for uh, pastors and for those of us who are consistently um, studying the Bible for a teaching aspect and things like that, just to go back and um, walk through some of the fundamentals, um, some of those things that over time um, you can uh, let go of a little bit, just some instincts start to take over, and it helps you go back and see, okay, here are areas that have grown in over time, here are areas that I need to grow in still. And so um, for many of us in this room, who you, I know there are a number of you that are, uh, you've studied the Bible for a long time. And so I hope that's been some of those things to you, where it's been encouraging, that it's been challenging, maybe given you another angle to look at in your Bible study. And as I said before, this is not um, I'm not saying that this is the only way that anyone should ever study the Bible. I'm trying to give you tools. Uh, we can never have enough tools, right, men? All right, we can never have enough tools. All right, John Fish is saying amen. Okay, I see it. All right. <laughs> um, but it's just trying to equip you and trying to um, just help you to be able to have things to take away from. And tonight, I'm, I'm excited about tonight. Uh, I'm looking for, I was really looking forward to tonight and next week. Um, I, I've enjoyed all of them, We've, but really I've divided this up into thirds. Um, where our first two weeks, um, we were talking about kind of our um, foundational pieces that we'll review here in a moment. And then um, the next two weeks, we talked about Old Testament, New Testament, we talked about genres, so some divisions within Scripture. And so what are some special cases, what are some scenarios that you need to look at and be aware of? Um, if there's any of this that you've missed, this is all on our podcast. Um, we are up to date on that. The last one, one from last week, got delayed a little bit, um, was uploaded today. And so if you missed last week's session, you can go ahead and you can check that out through the MRBC app, wherever you get your podcasts, notes available in the lobby that you can take with you and you can catch up on there. Um, and so as we're doing all this tonight and next week, really, we're coming into uh, maybe more of a practicum within, the, within this course. Um, within the study. We're coming to a point where we can uh, open it up and we're going to look and apply a lot of these principles that we've been building towards. And so tonight, um, we're going to do a lot of looking at uh, passages of Scripture. We're going to do a lot of, and I try to include most of it um, within our notes tonight. Um, there are a couple um, that I want to look at that are outside of um, that, that you'll have to open up your Bibles or take out a Bible app and look at. Uh, but for the most part, I've included those in our notes tonight. So I'm looking forward to doing that with you. Um, and so for those of you who are listening on the podcast in the future from now, um, this might be uh, a little bit harder one to follow along. We'll try to edit it so that you, it's, it's functional there. Um, there'll be a lot of question and answer tonight as we're looking at these passages. And then next week, what we're going to do is next week, we're going to talk about two types of passages in specific. We're going to talk about studying difficult passages, and we're going to talk about studying familiar passages, which sometimes can be difficult passages to study because we think we already know everything about that passage. So how do we go about undoing some of that looking at it with fresh eyes, being curious once again as we open up and study the Word of God. And so um, as we get started, I want to start off with a word of prayer tonight, and then we're going to jump into review, and we'll just dig right in. So let's pray. Father, I thank you that we can um, come together tonight and that we can study your Word. I thank you that the Bible is for everyone, that regardless of um, our levels of education in here tonight, 
regardless uh, of gender or age or socioeconomic status or intellect, that the Bible is for us, that the Bible has things that we can study and learn, that we can know you through its revelation and through knowing you, we, we can grow to love you more. Um, and Lord, I just pray that you would continue to give us a hunger and a thirst for your word. Help us to uh, seek after it, as we're going to talk about a little bit tonight. And Lord, I just pray that you would just uh, build in all of us uh, just a, a strong desire for the things of your word, for your truth, to know you better. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's, um, every week we've reviewed, and so let's just set this foundation for a review. If this is your first night with us, um, then this is, these are the things, this is the crux of everything we've been talking about. Um, and this is what we call inductive study. So inductive study, remember, goes in and says, what is the scripture saying to me? Not how can I impose my preconceived beliefs on the scripture? There are three steps for basic inductive study. Uh, and the three steps are this. First of all, observe. Observe. Um, so this is what does the text say? Secondly, we interpret. So we go from what does it say to what does it mean? And remember, we can't interpret until we observe, right? We can't say what does it mean unless we know what it says, all right? Um, could you imagine, um, those of you who are married or dating, if you received uh, a letter from um, the person that you are married to, dating, whatever it may be, you received this letter, um, and all of a sudden you think that you know the intent of the letter, and you know what the letter means, but you haven't read it yet. That wouldn't be a very good practice, right? How do you know what the letter means? Well, first you have to look at what the letter says. So is true with Scripture. And so we have to understand what the Bible says before we can know what the Bible means. We observe, then we interpret, and then we apply. We can't apply when we don't know what it says. We can't apply if we don't know what it means. And so all of these three are very important for us as we study the Word of God, and they must be done together. All right? So that's it for our review. We ask those questions. What does it say? What does it mean? How does it affect my life? And so as we jump in, what we're going to do tonight is um, we're going to talk, I mentioned talking about commentaries. We are going to talk about commentaries. We're going to save that kind of for the end. Um, leading up to that, I'm going to give you some tools for studying Scripture with Scripture. We're going to interpret Scripture using Scripture and using the methods um, that the Bible gives to us. And so that's what we're going to practice tonight. So all of the bold headings that you see are going to be um, the primary tools, the primary keys, and then we're going to break those down into their component parts. So first of all, it's important to understand the author's intent. The author's intent. How many of you guys ever got yourself in trouble by assuming someone else's intent? Right? None of us. None of us have ever been there, Right? Um, if you've been married, um, it's probably happened, right? Um, if you're in a marriage and that's never happened, then I need to meet with you because um, I need some uh, advice to stop putting my foot in my mouth, okay? Um, and we, we all, right, we make assumptions. We think that we know what this person's trying to say, and someone's talking to us. We're like, yeah, 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 yeah. And then later we're like, oh, I had no idea what they were trying to get across. Um, so if we're not careful, that's what we can do with Scripture, where we can open up a portion of Scripture and think we know what it means without ever considering what the original author's intent was. And so there's two types of intent. Um, first that we're going to look at is, um, there's not a lot spent on it, okay? It's clear intent. Some passages of Scripture, this is really, really cool. Um, it's, it makes our job easier trying to understand the meaning of it when the author says, this is why I wrote it. All right, so look at these verses. Look at John 20. Uh, verses 30 and 31. 
John, um, the apostle, the follower of Jesus, he said this, Many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. So, it's twofold. What is the intention of John's writing? Why did John write the book of John? All right. So, to tell about Jesus for the purpose of believing, right? So, he says, these are written that you might believe. Believe what about Jesus? That he is the Christ, the Son of God. And why? Why would it matter if someone believes that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? What's the point in believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Why is that helpful? Why is that good? Why should John write this? This is a question that we have to answer in our culture today. And we live in this culture that says, um, trying to tell other people about your religion and proselytizing in that way, leave them alone and more peaceful without it. Why does John say it's important that he write this book? Because when you believe... You have eternal life through that name. So John wrote the book with very clear purpose. Now, we have to read to chapter 20 to uh, find that purpose, right? Um, there's 20, I believe 21 chapters in the book of John. So we have to read towards the end of the book is where we get this intent. But now when we see this, when you read through the book of John, oh, it, oh that's why he included that statement. That's why he included that miracle. That's why he included that conversation with the Pharisees. That's why he, everything in the book of John points to this. He's the Son of God, the Christ. And by believing in him, you can have life through his name. So that's clear intent. Um, and there are a few books that have clear intent. Um, there are some that they just, the author says, this is why I'm writing. Others um, are, are not as clear initially. There's not a segment where they just come out and say, this is why I'm writing. And so how do we handle unclear intent? How do we handle unclear intent? Uh, there's a process to this that I think will be beneficial for the most part. Again, this is not something that you can just look at and be like, follow these steps and A, B, C, D. But this is a guideline to be able to uncover these things. Uh, first of all is this. Uh, we ask these questions. Who is the author and who is the audience? Who is the author and who is the audience? And so as we're studying, um, as we're looking at a, a book of the Bible, we have to find out who is the author, who's writing it, who's the audience, who are they writing it to. As we do these things, it's important to ask, and we'll look at some tools that help us diagnose some of these other things, but we want to know what their relationship is. Um, for example, we looked at the um, very beginning of our study, the first two weeks, we spent time in the book of Philippians, right? In the book of Philippians, who remembers who, what the book, who the book of Philippians was written by? Written by Paul, um, Paul the Apostle, follower of Jesus Christ. We can know more about Paul by reading um, what book? What book can we learn about Paul from? Acts. We learn a lot. Acts. Some of the other epistles as well, but Acts gives kind of a narrative about Paul. Who is Paul writing to in Philippians? The Philippians, right? All right not a trick question. He's writing to the Philippians. Um, how can we learn about the Philippians? What well, would be a great place to go to learn more about them? Also the book of Acts, okay? And so we can learn about Paul, we can learn about the Philippians, we can understand their relationship. Um, another thing that's important to know is, uh, letter B there, is the audience, um, it should be an individual or a group, an individual or a group. 
And so is the audience, is he writing to one person or is he writing to a group of people? Um, and so there's some books that are written to one person in specific. Who can think of a book that's written to one person specifically? Okay, book of Philemon, I heard Philemon. Um, so Paul wrote Philemon to Philemon. There's not a city called Philae and there's the Philemonites or whatever. It's Philemon is an individual. It's written to an individual. Um, and then there are a number of books written to uh, groups of people as well. Do you have a question? Okay, all right. So there are books that are written to individuals. There are, groups, there are books that are written to groups of people, to churches. And so it's important for us to understand in general, as much as we're able to, who and why these things are, who, who these are written to. This helps us with intent. Um, secondly, we want to look at the circumstances that are surrounding them. So just a few examples. Are they experiencing persecution or peace? Um, in the book of Philippians, I'm testing your memory, or if you want to turn to Philippians chapter number one, if you can, you can uh, reference that as well. In the book of Philippians, what's, what are the circumstances surrounding uh, Paul? What's Paul going through as he's writing the book of Philippians? Paul's in prison, um, which is going to come back around uh, and talk, it's going to inform us some on the theme of the book of Philippians. Um, how many, who remembers, does anyone remember what the theme of the book of Philippians is? Joy. The theme of the book of Philippians is joy. Um, and we're going to look at how we got there in just a minute. We're going to talk about some things being repeated, etc. If you look in Philippians, you see rejoice, joy, rejoice, joy, rejoice, joy all over the book. And now all of a sudden, this is written by a guy from prison. Does that change anything for you? What would you think about the book of Philippians if it were written from a mansion? If King David said, count it all joy, right? Would that be very persuasive by, from a king, from someone who's having servants wait on him? It wouldn't make it less true, but it would, in a lot of ways, make it less powerful, less impactful, wouldn't it? This is a guy who is under house arrest in a city that he's probably minimally familiar with, surrounded by people who don't want to hear his message. And he's saying, hey, guys, you can rejoice. Um, and look at letter B. Here's another thought, another thing to remember uh, or to look for. Are, they, are the people being written to, um, whether if it's an epistle especially, we see this, are, are they being commended or corrected? Um, are they being praised or is there something that's wrong within the book? And this is going to inform us some because, okay, uh, when we're looking at behavior, if Paul writes to one person and says, hey, this is how you're behaving, we want to know if he's critiquing this behavior or if he's, like, building up this behavior, right? Uh, we want to know, is this a good thing or a bad thing? Should I be following this? Should I be avoiding this? How should I function within this? Um, number three, um, are there any problems or issues mentioned specifically? Any problems or issues mentioned specifically? Um, and so, here, and one example, um, if you want to turn to um, the book of 1 Corinthians, here's a, a, an example that just lays the foundation for the rest of this book. Um, and so, okay, he starts off this book, 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, and he talks about um, this, this introduction, I thank God always on your behalf, um, in verse number 4, and he um, does all he say praises um, God for them and the testimony of Christ, and so he believes in their salvation. Um, but look, all of a sudden, he comes to this verse number ten. He says this: Now I beseech you, um, beseech being a, a challenge, beg, kind of a, a hybrid here. I'm begging you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's, I mean, this is strong language. 
that ye all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and same judgment. Why is he writing this? For it has been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. And so why is he, why is he writing this book? He's saying, all right, guys, I'm grateful for you. I love you. I praise God for your salvation. Now um, we need to get down to business. All of a sudden, he's addressing these problems. And really, if you're familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul spends a lot of time just unpacking a lot of these struggles and issues and contentions and divisions within this book. And it starts in chapter number one. So as we're watching, we begin to see this is a correctional letter. Is there theology in it? Yes. He's building all of it based on what they believe about God. Is there some things that are praiseworthy in it? Yeah, a little. Uh, but 1 Corinthians is a pretty, like, I wouldn't want 1 Corinthians written to me. Um, like, I, it's profitable. Um, but I wouldn't want to be on the receiving end of this. I wouldn't want to be behaving in the way that merited these kind of corrections. Um, because these are things that we ought to be avoiding as the people of God. And so, um, what other problems or issues mentioned specifically? Um, and this can come up in some narratives, even in other, issue, other um, types of literature, not just epistles as well. Um, number four, what words, phrases, or ideas are repeated or restated? Um, we're going to unpack that a little bit more uh, later on as we talk about some of these things. But what words, phrases, ideas are repeated or restated? Um, we talked before about if something's repeated, there's some kind of importance to it, right? Most of us, we don't go around just repeating ourselves for the fun of it, do we? Um, sometimes we, you know, accidentally do, but as a parent, I don't like to repeat myself. If I repeat myself, if I have to say it a second time, uh, I mean business, right? I'm not just throwing it out there, excuse me, look at me, I'm telling you to do this thing, right? When God repeats himself through scripture, God does not waste words. God, does, God doesn't say, God doesn't say, Oh, oh, I just said that, right? How many of you have ever been telling a story and you're like, wait a second, I just said that? Or, oh, hold on a second, did I tell you this story before? Um, been there, right? God doesn't, oh, did I tell, oh, you guys, oh, I already told you that. No, it's intentional as he repeats himself. And then um, number five, which we won't spend a ton of time on, we talked about this last week, I don't rehash all of it because there's a lot to unpack there, but what type of literature are they writing? Is it poetic? Is it a narrative? Is it a letter? What are they writing? What's the genre is the word that we used last week? Um, what type of literature are they writing? Um, and so that's, we want to uncover the intent of the author, the intent of the author. But secondarily, we also want to look at the structure, the structure. Um, and so we have to ask a couple questions here. Uh, first, does the book have discernible structure? Um, does the book have discernible structure? Um, and the reason this is important is there are a few books of the Bible that there's not um, a lot of um, intertwining between the chapters. So for example, um, the Psalms are written as standalones. Um, the Psalms, now they have themes that overlap between them, and we could understand certain aspects of David's life, but he wrote a lot of the Psalms. Um, Proverbs, similarly. But at the same time, both of those, you could pull a, a psalm out and you could study a psalm, and it's going to uh, not have a lot of bearing on the psalm beside it. Um, they're not arranged in an order that you could look at and be like, oh, this is why Psalm 118 is beside Psalm 119. Like, it just it wouldn't function that way. That's not how the book was designed. 
Um, Proverbs would, again, be another one. Um, and there are a few books um, that that's how they exist. Um, Lamentations, a lot of the poetry especially. Um, there's not a lot of overlap between them. They can exist in a little bit more of a way uh, standalone. But most books of the Bible fit in the second category. If, yes, they have a discernible structure, how then do they fit together? How do they fit together? And it's important to understand and to remember this. When we look at chapters within the Bible, um, chapters are helpful, chapters are good, but chapters were not in the original text. God didn't inspire chapter numbers. He didn't say, all right, Paul, I'm done with chapter one to the Ephesians, it's time for chapter two. That's not how, that's not how it worked. Um, in fact, it came much, much later, and it's more for organizational use. So that when I say, hey, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse number 10, I don't have to say, hey, open up the letter to the Corinthians and look about the third paragraph down where it says this. We can all just open our Bibles as a quick reference. Uh, so when I, as we go into that, that leads me into letter A here. The first step into figuring out how the text fits together is, um, somewhat ironically, divide the text. Divide the text. Um, so what we want to do is we want to look at how, first of all, we're trying to figure out how these pieces fit together, what actually goes together. Um, and so uh, look at um, Mark chapter number two. We're going to look at this. We're going to look at narratives. Mark chapter number two. Um, and I picked this book because they're actually, so this is one chapter. Um, and the book of Mark is very fast-paced. Mark just kind of throws, he spits it out at you. Um, it's story, 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 story. And he doesn't always clearly divide between where there's one and where there's another. Um, if Mark were divided just by the stories told, it would be a lot more chapters than actually are contained because he's just rapid firing at you, especially in chapter number two. Because in chapter number two, we actually find four distinct um, uh, just, I guess stories is the best way to say it, dialogues. Um, a lot of them are dialogues here, um, but it's written in what we call narrative. So this is a narrative, and as we look at a narrative, we want to divide by the scene change. So the narrative plays out kind of like a movie. And we see, how many guys, you watch movies, right? Some of us, all right, it's okay, we, you know, all right. Um, you see the scene change, right? You see this transition come up. All of a sudden, they were in the living room, and now they're at the store or whatever, uh, they were there, now they're there. These two people were talking, and now these other two people are talking. Uh, and so the scene changes. That's what we look for as we're following along within the narrative. And so um, look with me at um, Mark chapter 2. Look at verse number, um, well, if you skim down, if you, we're just going to kind of skim through it because I don't want to read the whole chapter for sake of time. Um, but look at uh, chapter number 2, verses 1 through 12 kind of play off um, together. And so... Um, what we have is Mark chapter number two, the first 12 verses um, is this story um, about this man that um, you may be familiar with the story that these four friends bring their friend um, that is sick with the palsy. He's unable to get up and to walk by himself and they go, they take him to Jesus and they uncover the roof and lower him down because they can't get in through the door. And Jesus, he says, uh, your sins be forgiven. The Pharisees don't like that. And so they said, is it easier to forgive sins or to say, take up thy bed and walk? He looks at the man says, take up your bed and walk. And he gets up and walks, right? And so he proves, he says, I can forgive sins. If you think I can't forgive sins, hey, watch this. And he gives evidence of who he is, all right? And so in verse number 12, immediately he arose, took up his bed and went before them all. Insomuch as they were all amazed, glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. And he went forth again by the seaside, and all the multitude resorted him, and he taught them. So all of a sudden, we have this transition. We were in a new story. He passed by. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus. The guy, the, the 
paralytic who is now healed, he's gone, that story's over with. And just as soon as that, this story's transitioned and Mark's moving on to the next thing. And we're still sitting here trying to like digest, wait, what just happened? But there's this division that just took place. Look down at verse number uh, 17. Jesus heard it. He said unto them, they hold need, no, uh, have no need of a physician. They that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Uh, and, the, and then what does it do? He jumps to the disciples of John and the Pharisees. We don't see time frame. We don't see if these two things are immediately after. But all of a sudden, there's a very sharp turn in what he's talking about. Do they relate to each other? Yes, we're going to look at it in a minute. But there's a very sharp turn. And so we see that we need to find out. We need to say, okay, how is the text divided? How should I, what piece should I bite off to try to have an understanding of this? Um, dialogues function um, a little bit differently. So we have narratives, we have dialogues, they function a little differently. Look with me at the book of uh, Job. The whole book of Job is um, just all of these dialogues attached together very poetically, um, but it's really a fascinating book. It's very unique in the way that it exists within Scripture. Um, and I want to look at verse is 5 and 6. Uh, Job. Um, <laughs> Job 8. Job 8, 5, and 6. Great question. All right. It's just guess. There's only 42 of them. Oh, man. Job 8, 5, and 6. And this is why it's important for us to follow the speaker change here. Um, watch this. If thou wouldest seek unto God betimes and make thy supplication to the Almighty, if thou wert pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. Okay. And so uh, what's being said here is that um, if you would look after God, if you would seek after God, and if you were pure and upright, so if, there, if you didn't have some kind of unconfessed sin in your life, surely he would awake for thee. So he would listen, and he would pr make you prosperous. Okay? Grabbing just those verses, um, how, does that, how does that sit with the way that we understand biblical Christianity? If this were in the Psalms, we'd be looking, we'd say, wow, that's a contradiction, Right? We were like, that's not how, because does just because we're living a godly life mean that we won't have any suffering? No, but that's what those verses look like, isn't it? Well, look at verse number one. Who, who's saying these words? Bildad, the Shuite. And actually, as we study the book of Job, you're going to find that Bildad speaks, and then chapter number nine Verse 1, what does that say? And Job answered. Jump down to um, chapter number 40 of the book of Job. What do we see now? Who do we see now? God answers. And in fact, actually look at um, chapter 42, verse number 7. It says this, And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends. Now, two friends would include uh, Bildad, who we read in chapter number 8. And he says, For you have not spoken the thing that's right, as my servant Job hath. So why is it important for us to know what's going on within this book? If you don't follow who's speaking, you could take a verse and you could say, oh, the Bible says this. Well, if you read the rest of the book, God says, that's not true. So are there untrue things in the Bible? Yes, and God says, they're untrue. Because there are chapters of the book of Job that's full of bad advice that God looks at and says, this is bad advice. 
So as a reader today, when we open up that chapter, are we looking that up and we're saying these are truths about God? No, we're saying these are wrong ways of thinking. These are ways that if we see this mindset within our own lives, we've got to get rid of it. Because this is not what God desired and God intended. And so it's important for us reading the book of Job, know who is speaking at this moment. Are they speaking truth or are they speaking falsely? Um, so that's dialogues. We want to divide it by the speaker change. Is a, is a great way, one great way to do it. Um, and then thirdly, we have sermons and epistles. Sermons and epistles. And what we can do is we can divide this by some logical progression. Um, and so we can say, what's the argument being made here? What's the argument being made there? A great example of this is um, Jesus' words. Matthew chapter number 5, if you want to turn over there. Matthew 5. And so look at um, the first um, 11, excuse me. Look at the, verse, the first 11 uh, verses, really um, 3 through 11. All right. Uh, what do we call this passage of Scripture? Matthew 5, 3 through 11 specifically. So the whole, uh, so specifically these are the Beatitudes. What's this part of? It's part of a greater dialogue or monologue called the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and so Matthew 5, 6, and 7 all contain this one, so the longest sermon, in fact, that we have from Christ. And so the first few verses start with what? Blessed are blank. Blessed are they. Blessed are this person or this group of people. Blessed are people with this characteristic. And so he begins and he lays out this argument and lays out these truths, really, um, and speaks of all of these. And then he turns the corner when you come to verse 12. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Really, this one ties in with verse 11. And then you are the salt of the earth. He builds on this argument. And so we want to look at this whole thing. It's a lot to digest three chapters of words spoken by the Son of God at one time, right? I mean, if I said, read all these chapters and tell me everything about it, like, it's not happening. So what do we have to do? We have to break it down into pieces that we can study and can't understand. Um, great tool after you do this, look at letter B there, is to summarize sections. So go into it, get deep, don't skip out on. Once you've kind of had an understanding of, one thing you can do is you can summarize that section. Um, and this helps you just to get an understanding of the whole. So put it in your own words. Um, and even if you want to title it, you can title it for some concise understanding. And what you're kind of doing is in the process of making an outline. Um, this is a way to look at the scripture and to say this is how it fits together because it leads us into letter C, where we examine the connections. We examine the connections. So we have chronological connections, so they're time-based, um, especially in narratives. We have comparisons and contrasts, where um, this is, is this an idea that flows together? Are these two different ideas? And so these are important for us to say, okay, what is he trying to teach us and explain to us through this? Um, and then a lot of times, especially within sermons and epistles, we find building arguments. So the person that's speaking is trying to uh, build their case, and so they're laying a foundation, and then they're jumping to that next logical thought, trying to lead us all the way to where they say, so because of these things, this is how we act. All right, um, let's jump to parallels. Parallels. Um, last week, we spoke really, really briefly about what we call parallelism, um, and I didn't really go into a lot of, um, I, I told you what it was, gave some examples of it, um, but I want to talk about the benefits of understanding and looking at parallelism, knowing what it is um, within Scripture. Um, and this is not, I don't think it's a, uh, 
a difficult concept to understand, but I think it's really valuable, especially as we study the Psalms and the Proverbs, a lot of the poetry. Um, the first benefit of parallelism is this. Parallels are common in Hebrew writing. They're common in Hebrew writing. Most poetry within the Bible um, is coming from a Hebrew perspective. Um, it's Old Testament writing. And so there are a lot of parallels within that, a lot of parallels within that. And so it's, uh, it's helpful for us to understand that Psalms, Proverbs, Job um, is written in a lot of the um, uh, parallels. Isaiah, we're going to look at this verse here from it in just a minute. Um, so it's important to understand because it helps us have an insight into a big portions of Scripture. Um, but here's one of the beautiful things about parallels that I just want you to understand before we continue. Uh, parallels give two opportunities for understanding. Two opportunities for understanding. Because if you don't understand it the first way, sometimes we understand when it's restated. So, um, for example, cover up the second line here um, on Isaiah 55, 6. So only look at the first line. Try to restrain yourself for a second. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. What is he meaning when he says, seek the Lord? All right, so uh, go find God, um, go look for him. Okay, I and mean, that's a good thing, right? But if you, now let's look at the second line. And this is an example of um, what we would call um, synonymous parallelism, meaning they say they're saying the same thing. And so look at this. All of a sudden we have, call upon him and seek the Lord. These are equivalent pieces. Um, while he is near and while he may be found. So now, if we're not just seeking the Lord, but he's going, he's doubling down, he's saying we should call upon the Lord. So how are we seeking the Lord? Well, this verse specifically is speaking about calling unto the Lord. It's speaking about prayer. It's speaking about um, seeking after him through communion with him. And so having a second line that can interpret the first line is helpful to us because if there's something that's maybe unclear to us in that first line, then we're able to look at the second line for further understanding. Um, linking words. Linking words. Um, and we're going to look at a few sets of these linking words. We're going to explain uh, what a lot of these do. And then uh, we're going to jump into a couple of study pieces uh, as we wrap up tonight. Linking words. So here's, um, I broke this down into a few sections, uh, seven sections, um, that are just words that join things together to help us have understanding. If we're going to mark up the scripture, if we're going to mark up our passages, it's good to draw lines, go back and forth through. And so this can be helpful um, knowing what these words actually do. These linking words, the first uh, set is we have uh, and also even. This one's very, uh, it's pretty simple, pretty straightforward, right? How many of you guys know how to use and? All right, good, most of you. Um, right, we, it's a word, uh, it's very simple. I gave you an illustration of it here, but it's really found throughout all of scripture. And as we're looking for these, we're looking through these without, to join together um, lines of thought. And so, and just does that. It's, he, so we have 1 Timothy 3, 15 and 16. Um, he says, the church, the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And so he's attaching verse 16 to verse 15. Um, secondly, we see the, these phrases, that, and in order that. And so this answers a question, for what purpose? And so in that he died for all, for what purpose? Why would he die for all, 2 Corinthians 5.15? That they which live should not live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them. So why did he die for all, according to Paul's argument in this verse? That they which live should not live unto themselves, but live unto him. Um, third, for and since. And so what this is doing, this is explaining a previous phrase. 
Romans chapter 10, you really can go through this chapter just piece by piece by piece by piece. Um, and he's just building and building and building and building. And so what does he say? Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Explaining the previous phrase. For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves into the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. Does anyone want to guess what verse 5 starts with? Hey, it starts with 4. And he continues to expound on this idea of the law. And so this word for and sense, they're just explaining. So when we see that, this is giving us insight into the previous phrase. Um, number four, therefore and wherefore. And so um, you can kind of, these are shorter ways of saying, in light of what was just written. All right? Um, wouldn't it be kind of be wordy if every time we saw this, in light of what was just written. All right? But that's what it's meaning. Um, so as Romans uh, 12, verse 1, Paul writes, I beseech you, Therefore, or I beseech you, in light of what was just written, brethren, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. So he's leading up to this point. He's leading all the way to where now he's saying, because of all these things I've just told you and just taught you, do this. And so there's a major change in the dialogue that's taking place and, uh, with a therefore and a wherefore. Um, number five, we have but, yet, rather, nevertheless, um, and there are actually a couple different times that some of these words are used. We have to kind of be discerning as we do this. Um, but we see it's strong contrast. This is strong contrast. Um, so as Paul's writing to Titus, he says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done. So our salvation, how's our salvation come? By works of righteousness that, we have, that we've done? He says, no, not by those works, but very strong, hard turn, according to his mercy, he saved us. And so he's drawing a very hard contrast with these. Um, number six, we see, however, now, and sometimes we see but and yet that are used this, and this is maybe more positive contrast. So this is saying, for the wages of sin is death, but, good news, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the wages of sin is death, that's a negative, but it's turning in a softer corner. It's not condemning, it's not criticizing, it's not harsh. It's saying the gift of God is eternal life. A very upbeat uh, theme to it. Um, then number seven, we see because and for, which answer the question, why? So back to Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so sometimes for can be used, um, and because can, uh, sometimes for especially can be used in, as an explainer. Um, and sometimes it just answers the question, why? And so we have a few different uses of those connecting words. All right, let's hit um, repetition, and we'll uh, talk about some commentaries, and then we'll finish up tonight. Um, so as the Bible gets into, uh, to when it does repeat itself, what are, what are takeaways? What should we think when the Bible begins to repeat itself? Uh, I believe there are, there are four ways that if you look at one of these four, most probably 99% of the time that you find the repetition within um, Scripture, it's going to fall into one of these categories. It's going to help you have an understanding of why they're repeating themselves. Um, so first, um, we want to see, we see that it highlights the main point. It highlights the main point. So what's the main point of this passage of Scripture? Well, he's repeating himself throughout. So there's, there's something specific that he wants us to understand. Take a second and read through um, this passage from John 6. Um, and look for repeating words. I gave this to you so you can circle, you can underline, you can mark it up freely. 
Um, so take a second, let's take just a couple minutes, read through this portion, and let's look at some of the uh, repetition that's taking place here. As you're working, what, what we're looking for is we're looking for um, words that tie together in the same theme. Um, so maybe words that are in the same uh, metaphor families, same words that relate to each other. Sometimes that same word just repeated or same phrase repeated over and over again. Um, but what's going on within this passage? What's taking place that just over and over again the author is just saying the same thing and the same thing? Um, in this case, being these are the words of Jesus speaking in John chapter 6. Um, and so what is he trying to get across? All right. Um, if you want to take it some time and say this at home later, finish it out, you're welcome to. But for now, um, what are, what's, what are, what's the theme? What's the theme that we're just getting? What's the phrases, words just used on repeat? What's the kind of, there's the kind of language. What's, what, what's being described here? What is Jesus talking about? Okay. Um, so we have, we have a few things that are taking place concurrently. Um, how many of you guys saw the word bread? Right? How many of you guys saw the word bread a lot? Um, we saw the theme of eating um, and partaking of. Um, and if we look, um, look in verse number, um, so verse 47, he makes the assertion, he that believes on me has everlasting life, okay? And so he equates believing with life. And then later he says eating and life. And so we see there's kind of a, com a comparison there. Um, but what does he say immediately? He says, I am what? Verse 47, that bread of life. And then what does he compare it to? The manna in the wilderness, going back to the Exodus. So he's saying, I am the bread of life. And he's saying, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and your fathers are dead. All right, a little happy about that, Jesus. Um, he said, and so what does he do? All of a sudden, he's talking about he is the bread. That he is his body. His body is meat. And then what is the result of eating of his body? Is it the same as eating of the manna in the wilderness? How would it compare to that? It's, what's the manna in the wilderness good for? Survival, physical life. But is that going to keep you alive forever? No. And then Jesus says, come eat my body, which is bread, and drink my blood, which is drink. And what will that give you? Eternal life. Life forever. It's a better manna. It's a more complete manna. But all of a sudden, what is he doing? He's just he's driving home this point, isn't it? And it's fascinating, because what do the Pharisees say, uh, the Jews, the Jewish leaders here in verse 52? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's like Jesus was like, he, I think he was trying to push their buttons at the same time. He's trying to get this point across. And he's like, you're bothered by this? This is truth. Hello. Uh, and he's kind of pushing their buttons here, right? Because they say, how can you say that? And then he just doubles down. Because he doesn't even talk about drinking his blood until after they say that, right? He just says, not only am I the bread of life, I'm also the water of life. If you can't stand this, then you're really not going to like what I have to say next. And so what does he do? This, when we understand this repetition, it highlights this main point. He just draws it out and draws it out and draws it out. And over and over again, he's just, he's explaining this metaphor. And he's going back, this is really cool, because he's going back to something that they understand. They knew about the manna in the wilderness, right? These are Jewish people, and the Exodus, the coming out uh, in, in, in the book of Exodus, out of Egypt, um, they know all about God's provision through the manna. 
And so all of these things, he's saying, I'm, a, I'm the better manna. That manna was a picture of me. And that's what he's saying. That's the claim that he's making here. And so it highlights, the repetition highlights the main point. Um, secondly, let's look at, uh, let's look at this um, chapter from uh, Daniel 3. It reveals the author's view of the narrative. Reveals the author's view of the narrative. Take a minute, read through this passage, and look at um, some things that were uh, repeated consistently within this. All right, so what are, some, uh, what's, what are some phrases and some words and phrases that we see repeated throughout this portion? We see Nebuchadnezzar the king, right? Nebuchadnezzar the king, Nebuchadnezzar the king, Nebuchadnezzar the king. Like if I wrote that and turned it into my literature teacher over and over and over again, they'd probably be like, uh, Nate, use a different word here. Um, but this is scripture. It's intentional, right? There's no accident here. Nebuchadnezzar the king, Nebuchadnezzar the king, Nebuchadnezzar the king. Um, what are some things that maybe uh, Daniel's trying to get across as he's talking about Nebuchadnezzar the king? And what's, what's another word that we see repeated here? Um, especially towards the end, there's a, there's a word that he uses um, a few times that ties in with the, that statue. I heard it. What is it? Worship, right? So Nebuchadnezzar the king, worship. Nebuchadnezzar the king and worship. Worship we see three times, especially towards the end of that section. Okay? Um, other times we see um, the word, uh, dedic the dedication of and things like that. It ties in with the same idea. But we have worship three times, as well as Nebuchadnezzar the king, just on repeat. Right? Every sentence starts, Nebuchadnezzar the king did this. All right? So what are some things that maybe... Um, What's Daniel, um, if you're familiar with the story, this story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So Daniel, the king, Daniel is a servant to the king during this reign. And the king comes in and says, hey, I'm going to make this image, builds this image. Everyone's going to come. They're going to worship it. Whoever doesn't is going to be thrown in the furnace. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego So we're not going to worship it. We serve the God of Israel. Uh, we're not going to have any part of that. And then uh, they, he throws them into the furnace. All of a sudden, they're not burned. And there's a fourth in there that's likened to the Son of God. So he says, get them out of here. And what happens next? Look at, a, look at um, if you have your Bibles, Daniel chapter 3. Um, this, is a, this is a really great contrast. Um, verse number 28. So, yes. So, verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar says this. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake. So the same king that was like, worship, this king, I am king, worship, I am is driving home this point. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel, delivered his servants that trusted in him, have changed the king's word, and yielded their bodies that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. The king's word in this day and age is not changeable. And what does he just say? What does he say just happened? He's saying this king can't stand against this god. All of a sudden, this is giving us a high view of God, but it starts, the whole chapter starts with Nebuchadnezzar the king, Nebuchadnezzar the king. Hey, I want you to remember who Nebuchadnezzar is. He's the king, all right? Going into this narrative. Look at um, number three here. Let's keep moving for a second time. We want to see it emphasizes, um, another repetition can emphasize the main idea. It can emphasize the main idea. And so we don't want to just necessarily look for repetition of specific words, but repetition of themes. Just take a minute and read through these verses. And we're looking for repetition of themes. So what are the unity, what's the unity of these metaphors here? What, what are all of these metaphors about in this passage? Or what, how do they all relate to each other? 
I'm not hearing hear anything you say. <laughs> okay, they all have, these are all, these are all disciplines. These are all things that take work to go through, right? How many of you guys think it's easy to be a soldier? Yeah, not all of us can be soldiers with uh, broken legs, so. All right. How many of you guys think boot camp is easy, right? I mean, like, it's not, yeah, yeah, maybe, might need to go through it, might need to go through it again. All right. It wasn't that hard. It wasn't that hard. All right. Um, if, if, if it's easy, you're probably not doing it right, um, right? Um, if man strive for the masteries, he has not crowned. It's talking about the athletic competitions, all right? Athletics may come more naturally to some people, but top-tier athletes, what do they have to do? They've got to go out there and work, right? And uh, when you get top-tier guys, they have to earn the uh, privilege of working more, right? Um, I don't think there are any professional athletes in this room. Why? Because we probably most of us weren't gifted enough, but if we were gifted, we didn't go out there and discipline ourselves to be that next-level athlete, all right? And so you have to go out there, and it takes work to obtain these things. Um, you see, the husbandman that labors, all right, uh, you don't go out and work a field without putting in work. Um, farmers, I don't think many, any of us would accuse farmers of being lazy, would we? Um, people that tend crops and tend fields, it takes a lot of work to go about those jobs. So he's saying these are disciplines. These are things that have to be sewed into. Um, and so these three ideas tie together. Look at uh, number four. Um, sometimes, the, um, sometimes the repetition of words, it, it sets the scene or it determines the tone of the passage. Um, so it determines, uh, determines the tone. Setting the scene, it can be another way, again, that you can say it that way. Um, read through this passage and just look at the words that are repeated over and over again. And then look for contrast. So when we're looking for these repetitions, look for the same words and look for things that stand against and they're kind of stark to that repeated word or repeated theme. So just take a minute. Let's take a minute, look through these, and then uh, we'll, we'll wind down. We'll wrap up. All right, so just for a second time, I'm going to cut you off. What, what's a, what are the themes that we see? What are words that we see over and over again? Okay, so we see that great city. What, what city is that referring to? Verse number 10. Okay, so this is a new Babylon. This is the book of Revelation. This is prophecy that is as of yet unfulfilled. Um, so we're waiting for these days to come. Um, what's going on around it? What are the phrases and themes that are going on around this city of Babylon? What's happening in this? It's being destroyed, right? So how is, how is the author, what's, what's going on all around it? What are, there are a lot of synonyms that are used here. Look at verse number nine. You see that word uh, bewail, lament. Um, we see fear, we see torment, we see that those are, those are repeated multiple times. We see alas, alas, this is kind of a woe, you know, uh, a weeping phrase, right? Uh, we see verse 15, weeping and wailing. Verse 18, cried. Verse 19, cried, weeping, wailing, alas, alas, as this city is crumbling, the city is falling. And then uh, look at verse number 20. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and you holy prophets. So all of a sudden, there's this contrast that's being given here. And so weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth for all of these that are uh, following after the wickedness of the city. But the people of God rejoice because God's avenged you on her. Uh, hey, all the wickedness that they wrought on you, God has brought about on their own head. And so um, it kind of sets the tone. And so this is a tone of great sadness that's taking place. Although for those of us who are followers of God, this is not a great sadness when this takes place. Um, finally, last page, I want to talk about commentaries, Bible dictionaries for just a minute, and we'll be out of here. Um, so there are two different types of books um, when I say these things. First is a commentary. 
Um, a commentary gives uh, details about, um, about the historical context. The commentary is going to be uh, one that kind of expounds on, begins to interpret and apply passages of Scripture. Um, there are three different types of these. The first is what we could call exegetical, um, which this is focused on interpretation. So this is just looking at and trying to interpret the passage for you. Um, the second is homiletical. Um, so this is going to go a step further, and this is not just going to say, um, how does it, what does this mean? But it's going to try to apply it to our day and age. Um, can anyone see a weakness in that? All right. Um, most of us aren't going to study homiletical commentaries from the early 1900s or even the 1950s or even the 1980s, right? Because our culture has changed dramatically in that time. So these are commentaries trying to make a very direct application. Um, a lot of times the interpretations are solid, but the applications don't hold true because they're trying to apply it to a specific day and age. Um, devotional commentaries are often very focused on individual application. Um, a lot of times these might be even little devotional books that we have, and those can be good, um, especially ones that are well-written and that the author is doing all the other study work. Um, what I would say be careful with some of those is that they just take a verse and they don't do anything with the context, and all of a sudden we can be looking at Job 8 and learning about how God would answer our prayer if only we served him better, right? Um, because there's not a lot of consideration. So just be careful um, when looking at those things. Um, and really, commentaries as a whole, um, letter C, just big, bold, they're most helpful when they're used to check our work. Um, don't open the Bible and say, oh, I read two verses. What's the commentary say? Um, that's, going, that's not going to help you grow in the same way that actually studying the Bible will help you to grow. Um, it'll help you get a deeper understanding and appreciation for these things. And then when you finish, it's not a bad idea to come back and check a commentary um, or check commentaries. Um, because if you're coming up with this new idea, and I saw this thing that no one's ever seen in the Bible before, um, that's, that's probably not a good thing. Probably not a good thing. Um, Bible dictionaries are something else. Um, which Bible dictionaries, I love Bible dictionaries. I use probably more Bible dictionaries than commentaries. Um, because much like any other dictionary, they're, they're a lot like other dictionaries, but they're Bible-specific. Um, so if I want to find the word joy, it'll give me a biblical definition of joy, and it'll give me a bunch of references about what joy, uh, where joy is mentioned within Scripture, some themes, some other topics to study within that. Um, if I look up Philippians, it'll tell me what chapter of the book of Acts I could find Philippians in. Um, oftentimes it'll give me a context of that historical city. It doesn't go into trying to give me um, interpretation of, sometimes, but, but rarely, giving interpretation. It's just giving me information through which I can begin interpreting the Bible. So that's why I love Bible dictionaries, is they don't do all the work for us. They just give us help in trying to study these things. And some may include outlines, pictures, charts, other study tools. Um, so at the bottom, I gave you some online resources. One that's online and it's free, and it's been around for a long time, Matthew Henry's commentary. It's not perfect. It's not the Bible. Um, but it's a, it's a good commentary. Um, it's conservative, and it's a view of Scripture. He views Scripture very highly. Um, it's been around for actually a couple hundred years, um, and it stood the test of time. Um, there are a lot of good things about it. And again, it's free. It's not the Bible, um, so don't go to it thinking everything Matthew Henry has to say is correct, um, because nothing he has to say is correct. Not, ev not, not everything he has to say is correct. Um, not everything you have to say is correct. Not everything I have to say is correct. What's correct? The Scripture is correct. Um, and then um, there are some other encyclopedias and dictionaries um, that are also available through that link there. And so I encourage you to um, take advantage of some of those tools. Um, let's go ahead and let's have a quick word of prayer and be dismissed. Father, we're grateful for your word.